thank you for the car. <laughs> this is so much better than a damn money clip. <laughs> oh, these are somebody's car keys, okay. Oh, it goes to a sable, a four-door class YF with a cruising bucket. Hoo-hoo. <laughs> Evidently, somebody's lost their keys. Now I'll get on with this. Thank you so much. That just, it just hit me. I just saw it, you know. My name is Mary Pearl, and I'm an Alnon who's happy, joyous, and free. And by the grace of a loving God and the power of the fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al-Anon, I haven't found it necessary to take the life of a breathing alcoholic <laughs> since January the 15th of 1977. And for that, you all should be damn grateful. I just couldn't resist. It was just too good. Too good, too good. See, I'm an impulse person. They call me Captain Spontaneity at home. They say, what are you going to say? I don't have a clue. You hear it the same time I do. I live for the adrenaline, you know, that's my drug of choice, adrenaline. You know, if I don't have some excitement, create some. What the hell? <laughs> now, for all of you out there who have been wondering, since I'm a former shadow of myself, I want you to know that uh, it was necessary this year that I should go back to work, and so I'm a lap dancer. <laughs> Ken gave me that line. I love it. <laughs> it's so good to be here, and I'd like to thank Denny and the committee, and especially Nancy, who's been so nice to me, and for inviting me to come back. Like, like Sterling, it's so unusual to be invited back places. You know, usually you ruin them when you're there. You know, and they usually say, don't get that crazy heifer back in here, you know. That was always the comments when I left places. I, I've left places in a lot of ways. I hate that snowplow movement where you get the gravel in your palms. <laughs> That's right before they carry you off to jail for assault. Well, I'm a low-bottom Al-Anon for those of the newcomers. And my purpose in life, as I understand it, is to make all the alcoholics grateful that you're not married to me. <laughs> J.D. is surviving at home. He says to tell you thank you for taking me away. <laughs> I want to thank all of you. Uh, this has been, uh, in all seriousness, this has been a very difficult year. It has been a year of, uh, you know, we say there's nothing as constant as change. And there have been so many changes in my life this year that were not initiated by my own person, you know. Those are the kind you hate, you know, when doctors tell you things that you got to do and what have you. And it all started on November the 30th of last year. And uh, basically what happened was my sister, who was an insulin-dependent diabetic, and if those of you who have followed my life over the years, you know how important my sister is. And uh, she's my only living family member left. And uh, I had taken her to the doctor that morning, and after leaving the doctor's office, I took her to the drugstore to get her prescription, and she looked very, very bad. And uh, as I pulled out of the shopping center, my sister died in the car with me. And uh, there's worse things. <laughs> and um, it was one of those, God, what do you do things? God, what do you do? And uh, God sent a motorcycle cop because I was in bumper-to-bumper Christmas shopping traffic in front of the biggest mall in Arkansas. And uh, the motorcycle cop came up. I told him, I said, my sister's just crapped out on me here, and I need help. And uh, there was a new hospital that just had opened two weeks before, eight blocks away. And so he parted the traffic for me, and we got over there. And uh, they were able to revive Dorothy. But Dorothy uh, went without oxygen from 8 to 12 minutes. So she has profound anoxic brain damage. And so I had to be made um, 
Uh, we didn't know if she was going to live or die there for quite some time. Uh, she was in ICU for 15, 16 days, and what had happened, her kidneys had shut down. And uh, she had to go on dialysis. And uh, it was a very, very scary time, and I started shaking, and I couldn't quit shaking. And her doctor suggested I go to a doctor. And the doctor, when I got there, he was not thrilled with me. As you all all know, I was a very overweight individual. And, uh, but, you know, doctors have told you that all your life, you know. And I always hate when the pudgy ones tell you to lose weight. <laughs> you know, somebody like Denny, you know, you need to lose weight, you know. <laughs> no offense, Denny. <laughs> but anyway, he told me, he said, uh, you're also a borderline diabetic. And I looked at my sister as a living example of how not to treat diabetes. And so it got my attention. And so it's by the grace of God, you know, I, if that hadn't happened with my sister, I might have been flying up here at some time or another and just crapped out because they found out in all these tests I have a heart condition. And I would never have known that if I hadn't had all these things fall into place like they did. And um, I had to become the legal guardian and power of attorney for my sister who... Um, I uh, can't remember much of anything on short term. She'll ask you the same thing. Her favorite program is CNN News. You see, it's new to her every 30 minutes. Because <laughs> she can't remember. She can't remember. And she can remember stuff that happened 20, 30 years ago, but to her it happened yesterday. And so I have to I have provide round-the-clock care for her because you never know what she's going to do or not going to do. Physically, she's in the best shape she's ever been. And, um, you know, in Al-Anon, we always want to say we want to manage and control. Well, I'm going to tell you, when you have the power over another person's life, it's a tremendous responsibility, and it's a real drag, too. But during this time, the doctor told me, the, the regimen, he said, you're going to have to change your lifestyle. And so uh, that's what I did. I did everything the doctor told me to do. In fact, he calls me his star patient. He said, I wish everybody would do what you did. And I said, but you just didn't have an Al-Anon. <laughs> and he said, I don't understand. I said, you don't have to. Because I said, you just give us a mission. <laughs> and I did what I was supposed to do. And I got with a dietitian, and we figured out with my lifestyle how I was going to have to learn how to eat differently, do differently. And uh, as of August, I had lost 100 pounds of weight. Not only that, I, for the last five months, I am not diabetic anymore. <laughs> blood sugars are all normal. And I've been on high blood pressure medicine since I was 30 years of age. I'm no longer on high blood pressure medicine. And I take vitamins. You know, and so I'm probably in the best physical shape that I have been in in years and years. And it's tragic that it has to take something of that nature to get your attention, but you have to hit bottom in every area of your life, is what I found out. Uh, it's also been a year of loss. Uh, Y'all know, too, that not having any children, that my dogs were my children. And I had to uh, lose both of my babies this year, 16 and 16 and a half years old. And that has been extremely, extremely difficult. I lost my sister as I knew her. So it's been a year of change. And then I'd look in the mirror and I had lost me, for God's sake. <laughs> now, we laugh, but I'm telling you, for a long time, I still saw me the way I used to be. And people would say, that's crazy. Can't you see? And I'd go, no, no, because you get so used to seeing. And it's like, you know, you're vulnerable at a different level. You know, before I had the weight to put behind anything, I said. <laughs> I don't have it anymore, you know. And I go, where did she go? Where did she go? And everything in my life changed. I'm here to tell you, I even had to have the lens changed in my glasses. I was going around thinking I was going blind. And the doctor said, what's the matter? And he checked your eyes. He said, same thing you've had before. It's not any different. And I said, why can't I see? He said, you don't have any cheeks. Your bifocals are in the wrong place. <laughs> oh, there you are. I mean, my shoes changed. I got ready to go to talk at a convention. I put on my slip and it fell on the floor. <laughs> Didn't have a button on it, Karen. It's just it was too damn big, you know. I went from a size 28 to an 810. 
You know, and if you told me that I could have done that, I would have said it's not possible. But you know, one of the greatest things that helped me was what I learned the principles in this program, and that is you don't have to want to do it to do it. You don't have to like doing it to do it. You just, by God, do it. And that gets it done. And I had all the love and the encouragement of the people. And I want to thank you because I got emails and cards and calls from people all over, not only this country, but all over the world when they found out that there was problems going on in 409 Healy Street. And I could not have made it because the fellowship this year has carried me. That y'all have literally carried me through one of the most difficult times of my life. You know, and when you get in here, I love it, all these success stories. I hate to tell you this, but sometimes life still happens, you know. <laughs> and, but I'm living proof that you can get through to the other side. And I'm coming through. I did go through a period of depression, but I am through on the other side. And I'm real grateful for that. And I'm real grateful for you. Now, having said that, I'm going to tell you what it used to be like. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because I believe in bringing you up to date on what's going on in my life. Uh, what do you want to say? I started off as a child, like some of you. <laughs> well, some of you never grew up. I mean, I hear it every day, people wanting a better childhood. You know, sooner or later, you have to give up all hope of a better childhood. Uh, it's over, it's done, let's move on, you know. I was spoiled rotten by my daddy. I'm the youngest of four children, and everybody else was grown or dead before I came along. And uh, so I was raised as an only child. And I was a lonely child, and so I was one of those that uh, did things to make my life exciting. I think that's part of the deal, you know. Uh, my mother was a real <laughs> untreated Al-Anon, <laughs> the sickest of the sick. I always felt like she was the only one in her family that didn't drink, but she needed one. <laughs> mm. And if alcohol would have done for me what it seemed to do for some of y'all, I'd be in a different program. But I'm not allergic to alcohol. Drank gallons of the stuff for a long time. It never made me shorter, skinnier, blonde, pretty. It never did any of those things. What it did was it made me sleepy, and I might miss something. <laughs> and God knows I don't want to miss what's happening. The worst thing in the world would be bored to death. You know, I just cannot imagine anyone wanting to live in a boring life. Well, let me tell you, look for an alcoholic. You never know what the hell's happening with them. You know, if you don't have one, go get one. My daddy taught me a lot of things. And one of the things he taught me was the value of revenge. Now, I don't think daddy meant to do that, but... See, my mother, she never liked doing anything that we wanted to do. My mother had a work ethic that if you're not working as hard as you can every day of your life, you're not worth anything. Well, Daddy retired uh, before I was born, actually, and uh, because, like I say, I'm that change-of-life baby way down the line. And so all he wanted to do was fish and hunt. That's fine with me. And so I'd go fishing and hunting with him, and she'd sit home, and she would be in there sewing and, and doing her thing, and uh, she would think that we were degenerates because we were out having fun because Mama just didn't have fun. She didn't know how to have fun, didn't want to have fun. She enjoyed being miserable as much as anybody I've ever known. <laughs> And uh, she loved to bitch. God, I hated a woman that bitched. I tell you what, I just hated that. And you know what? I became one. <laughs> there it is. You know, whatever you hate, you know, it's, you've got it here yourself. But anyway, Mama decided she wouldn't go with us on all these trips. And we were happy. And then one day she decided to ruin it. She came with us. <laughs> and I caught me a little fish right off the bat. And the first thing my Mama did, she took a look at it and she said... It's too small. It's not a keeper. And she ripped it off my hook and threw it back. Well, that hurt my feelings because my philosophy of fishing is then and now. If it has eyes and a tail, string it. <laughs> and so Daddy told me, I went in this screaming coma right there in the boat. <gasps> you know, I just, I was the kind of kid you'd kill. And so my daddy says, honey, come here in the back end of the boat with me. And as I got close to him, he said, and we'll get her. <laughs> well, I really didn't know what it meant, but intuitively I think I'm going to like this. And so what happened was every time she'd catch a fish, she'd swing around, he'd take it off, he'd, and he'd put it down, and then he'd rebait her hook, and she'd swing back around, and he'd hand me the fish, and I'd throw it over. <laughs> every fish the old heifer caught, I threw away. I loved it. 
Now, Daddy's playing a joke on Mama, but see, that's not what I learned. What I learned was when somebody hurts you, do it back to them as many times as you can. So I love that slow, premeditated revenge. I still love it. I just don't do it. You know, I can't think about it too long. Because I know if I do, I'll act on it. Because that I think on long enough, I am prone to act upon. There's a lot of things I learned here about me that I didn't know when I got here. I thought I knew everything when I got here, and I found out I knew nothing. I wish sometimes I knew today what I thought I knew when I came in, you know. <laughs> Whew, that would be a revelation, I'll tell you. But anyway, uh, what happened in 1954 on November 30th, at November 30th again, my daddy dropped dead of a heart attack. And I watched Daddy die that night of that heart attack, and that's the reason it scared me so much with Dorothy, same day, 45 years to the day. And um, anyway, uh, my life changed then, too. My life changed totally because everything that had been was gone. I, I was left with her, and she didn't love me, and I knew she didn't love me. She made no bones about it, and I didn't love her. I hated her for not loving me because, you know, you've heard the expression... There's the face of a child only a mother could love. And I'm thinking, well, what in the hell's the matter with me that my mama can't love me? Why can't my mother love me? And so I was left alone with her because my sister and brother were married and gone. And, and so there it was. Well, we declared war on one another. Whoever dies, the other one wins. <laughs> and I was dedicated to making her life miserable, and I felt that she was the same. So there was a lot of hell there. Now, I was an overachiever in school. And that's where I found myself. Uh, that's where I felt good. I felt good away from home. As long as I didn't have to go back home, everything was okay. And uh, I would go to school, and I was the teacher's pet because I'm the straight A-plus student because I'm the kind that has to make an A-plus to feel equal to a kid who's making a C. I don't feel good about me. There's something wrong with me. My mother doesn't even love me. And if you knew how I felt about my mother, if I said I hate my mother... Well, then you'd find me socially unacceptable. Now, that's how it was back in the 40s and 50s. Nowadays, kids don't have a problem with that. But, you know, but back in my day, you just didn't say those things. And so I went on like that. And like I say, I was the class valedictorian. I achieved tremendous amount of things. And my mother never showed up for anything, never came, never supported anything. I just wasn't who she is over there sewing, you know. She can't be bothered. Just got to sew, got to sew. And um, so they built an Air Force base. God loved the Air Force, Sterling. <laughs> and I looked, and I read in the paper, there was an article that said that there was ten men for every woman in the area. And I thought, hot damn, I want my ten. <laughs> and I want your ten, I want your ten, you know, what the heck. Never enough, too much of a good thing, you know. And so I got, and I went trolling, and... Um, <laughs> I found this little Yankee boy, and the uh, next thing I knew, you know, he asked me to, to marry him. He said, I'll take you away from all this. I would have done anything for someone to take me away from there. Because, you see, I know it's her. I know it's North Little Rock. If I can just get away, everything will be different. Guess what? It was different. <laughs> but it wasn't different doesn't necessarily mean good, you know. <laughs> Where'd they take me, you know? My husband, we, we asked for France and Germany and Spain, and we went to Newfoundland. Now, Newfoundland, has anybody ever even thought about going to Newfoundland? <laughs> Where is it? You know, we got an atlas now, and we found this is Dinky Island off the coast of Canada. Where, where, what is this? Went up there, and the average snowfall was 300 inches a year. <laughs> That's a lot of snow when you've never seen more than a couple inches at a time. You know, and it's like boring up there. You know, I mean, look, Harvey, there's a moose in the backyard. I mean, what is there to see? <laughs> It's just a boring place, you know. And where did I find excitement? Well, I found it in the clubs, of course, because that's where you had the sound of the ice going into the glasses, and you had the sound of laughter coming out of the clubs. And I went, yes, I have arrived in Mecca. And I loved it. I loved it too much in those clubs because, see, my husband played in the band, and he was the lead guitar player. And so while he would play, I would troll. <laughs> <laughs> See, I had a memory problem long before Dorothy did. I'd forget I was married. Now, we had a lot of excitement up there, but the main thing was I was working for the Red Cross. And uh, when it came time for us to rotate back, well, the, the assignment section, we corresponded with them all the time, 
and a guy called and he says, guess where y'all are going? And I said, where? And he said, y'all going to Minot. Minot, North Dakota? I don't think so. And he said, well, that's where y'all are supposed to go. I said, well, change it. And he said, well, what do you mean change it? I said, you work there in the assignment section. I mean, you've got the pencil, a piece of paper, change it. And he said, well, I don't know if I can do it. I said, what do you mean you don't know if you can do that? Of course you can do that. I said, what would it cost to have that? And he said, well, where do you want to go? And I said, I want to go back to Little Rock Air Force Base. Because don't you know, everything's going to be better back there now. And he said, well, there's not an opening in your husband's career field. I said, make one. He said, well, I can't. He said, the only thing I have in there is another opening. I said, well, put him in it. He said, well, it's not your husband's career field. I said, he'll never know the difference. (laughs) He noticed. Um, We arrived back at Little Rock Air Force Base, and my husband, who is an aircraft mechanic overnight now, is, uh, he's supposed to be the the head on the crew team for a missile squadron, you know. (laughs) He's never seen a missile. Mistakes. That ought to make you sleep good at nights, knowing stuff like that. <laughs> but I got what I wanted. And so we come back to Little Rock Air Force Base, and in a short period of time, it's like Karen says, you know, when you try to make it over, whether you divorce them or not, you're going to have it. It's going to be different. This It's just awful. And so it didn't take long. No, this isn't working one more time, and I want out. Now, I don't want to be divorced because I'm not ready to be self-supporting through my own contributions. I was sick. I wasn't stupid. And so I got separated. That's what I wanted to be. And that way I'd get an allotment check every month, and then he would go on and do his thing, and I could be happy. And guess what? That's what we did. He went on to another base assignment, and I stayed there, and I got the allotment check, and I don't know what to do. You see, Mother had told me what to do, and he had told me what to do, and now nobody's telling me no, what to do. I don't know what to do because you do exactly what everybody tells you not to do. You know, and so when you don't have that, what do you do? So I began to look around for excitement, and across the street I found excitement. There was a boy who came home, and when he would get drunk, he'd come home and beat his wife up. I knew all about alcoholism. My mother came from that alcoholic family. Her father died of cirrhosis of, no, excuse me, her father died of wet brain. Her mother died of cirrhosis of the liver. Her oldest brother was shot in bed with another man's wife, my favorite of her family. <laughs> And she had two sisters. And, and, I mean, everybody drank. And when they would drink, they would fight with one another. And so, therefore, this was normal. You go home, you beat everybody up. That's the way it is, isn't it? And so when I saw this guy doing that, I thought, you know, that's bad. Men should not be allowed to abuse women. Women can abuse men. That's fine. But now it's not good the other way around. And so uh, this girl was pregnant. And so one night she came over to my house. She'd gone into labor after he'd beaten her up. And so she wanted to know if I'd take her to the hospital because she said he was passed out. And so we went over and we're helping her pack her clothes. And I look at him and he's laying on the bed like this. A little smirk on his face, you know. And I thought, you know, somebody ought to whip your butt. And that's when I had my first spiritual awakening. (laughs) I'm somebody. So I took that man, I tied him up in his bed sheet. I took a slat out of that bed and I beat the fool out of him. (laughs) And it made me feel good all over. Next morning, he came over to the house, and he said, I was in a hell of a fight last night. (laughs) Do tell. (laughs) Then there's an alcoholic who lived on the other side of me. Did you ever feel like you was a carrier? (laughs) Wherever you go, there they are. And this guy, the doctor told him, he said, Freeman, you're an alcoholic. You got to quit drinking or you're going to die. Freeman quit drinking, died anyway. But he was miserable, irritable, restless, discontent. Yes, yes, he was all of those things. And he, had, he was a nauseating little man. He had a garden, and uh, he wanted to get out there and till in his garden at 8 in the morning. Well, I'm a night person, for God's sake, and I want to prowl. And so I get home around 7 o'clock in the morning just having fun, as Cliff would say. And uh, this guy wants to till his garden. I'm trying to sleep. It irritates me. So I go out and I tell him. And he tells me to shut my mouth and get my fat butt back in the house. He doesn't know about Mother and the Fish. (laughs) So I get my daddy's frog gigging headlight and I mow grass at 11.30 at night. Well, the sheriff comes to see me. Have you ever noticed law enforcement people are very narrow-minded? 
So I go into plan B. Now, Freeman has six beagles. Now, if you've got one beagle, you know they're a barking, barking little yep, yep dog. Well, he's got a whole chorus out there. So I'll wait till the wee hours of the morning. I run off my back porch, run across the yard, grab a broom handle, run up and down that dog yard fence, stir them dogs into a frenzy, run, jump back on my porch and wait. Well, he comes out, and of course he's in his underwear, and he's cussing at the dogs, and he finally hoses them down to get them to shut up, and he goes back in the house, and we wait about an hour, and we do it one more time. (laughs) And the sheriff came to see me. (laughs) And there were three or four other little instances there, and the bottom line, I knew I was going to have to do something different because the sheriff and I were beginning to develop a relationship. So that's when I noticed we had a neighborhood softball team, just a normal neighborhood, you know, and so I decided that's what I want to do. I want to join the team. So I got me some stretch boots and some hot pants, and I joined the team. Now, I loved, I was an athlete in school. I loved playing ball. So I, this was my thing, and it was our custom after the game to go back over to someone's house, and some of them would pop a few tops. Some of them would snip a few things. Others had these little sugar cubes, just your normal neighborhood. And... Um, <laughs> We'd discuss what was going on, okay, and why we were going to have our strategy for our next game. And there was one night this little boy, they were all over at my house, and this kid, he was 18, got drunk at my house, and I thought, oh, God, he's going to get picked up going home. The sheriff and I are going to have another confrontation. Don't need that, so I'll just drive him home. And some others were going to follow me and take me back, and I said, that's it. So we get in his truck, and I'm driving him home, and he's got this tea set sitting on the seat, and he said he had got it for his mother for Mother's Day. And I thought, if he tries to take that in the house, he'll break that, as shaky as he is. So I'll do it. Now, here's the picture. It's the wee hours of the morning. I'm taking a drunken 18-year-old kid home to his mama. We're walking through the house in the dark, and I'm carrying a china tea set. Your everyday situation. And all of a sudden, he flipped the light on in his bedroom, and there was a man laying on the bed, nothing but his jockey shorts. He looks up and goes, well, hot damn, little brother, you brought us a broad home. (laughs) I said, not tonight, fella. But that's who I'm married to. (laughs) We meet in the strangest of places. And as of this past Tuesday, we've been married 31 years. But we didn't get married right off because, you see, um, it was that later that summer, we met again and we started dating and we had four years of just absolutely wonderful times together. And then he ruined it and asked me to marry him. Because, you see, there was a little detail I had forgotten to mention to him along the way. You know, there's a time to tell things, and if you go past that time, there just doesn't seem to be a good time to tell, you know. (laughs) And so I told him I couldn't marry him, and he said, well, why not? Don't you love me? I said, it has nothing to do with it. He said, well, what is it? I said, I'm married already. He said, you're married. I said, I forgot. I forgot. (laughs) I was having such a good time, I forgot. And I said, how did you think that I lived? I didn't work. I had a new car, a nice home. He said, I thought you were rich. (laughs) Yes. Well, let me tell you, what goes around comes around. We got married, and he quit work, and I took care of him. You know, when you use somebody, it'll come back on you at some point. You know, that's one of those spiritual principles that I've learned in this program. But anyway, we got married, and guess what? Alcoholism moved into my home. Had not a clue. I know he didn't know how to drink right. Because, I mean, it seemed like he, it was like going out with a whole bunch of men on one night. You know, there was the guy who picked you up who was sort of quiet and shy, didn't care much for him. And then there was a guy who had several drinks, and I liked him because he was more outgoing and liked to have fun. Then there was a guy who thought about every bad thing that ever happened to him in his life, didn't care for him at all. And then there was the one that had the mouth like a shivvy trunk, you couldn't keep it shut. And I just would have to put him out of my misery. So, that's what it began in our home. And that violence that I had seen always in my mother's family with the drinking entered our home, not by way of the alcoholic, but by me, by me. Because I did not know how to deal with anger. I did not know how to deal with frustration. And so I became the physical abuser. And I can tell you that when you abuse another person, it does something deep on the inside of you. Something inside of you dies as well. And there's a point that you want them to hit you back. You want them to do that so that you won't feel guilty about it. He never raised a hand to defend himself.
And it's a good thing. We would have killed one another. No question about it. Because when I would go into those rages, I was, I was just maniacal. And if he had lifted one hand to do anything, I would have killed him. And uh, that's just the way it was in our house. One day at a time, we began a living hell. And it wasn't very funny. It wasn't very pretty. But we laugh about some of the things now because they were so crazy. You know, he would disappear. Now, he was allergic to alcohol. He said it made him break out. He broke out in New Orleans. St. Louis, Memphis, you know, just wherever. And when he would go off like that, the fear would set in with me. Where is he at? Who is he with? What are they doing? And I never thought about a good thing that could possibly be out of that. And it would drive me crazy. And he'd show up. He'd been gone maybe three or four days. He'd show up like he'd been gone ten minutes. And he would act like he'd been gone ten minutes. And in an hour's time, I was convinced he hadn't been gone but ten minutes. You know, and that's my sickness. Because, see, we call to one another. You only start seeing what you want to see. You only hear what you want to hear. Because if you don't have a solution, you won't go that far. If you don't have something to go further, what are you going to do? If our only option is to do something you don't want to do, then you don't have anything to do. And so that's the way it was going to be in our house. Strange things happened to me. I was attacked by my washing machine. Now, things happen to me that never happened to another living soul in this world, and that's because I put myself in a position no human being would ever do with a lick of sense. But I had this old Frigidaire, and I'm, I'm very well convinced that it was invented by an alcoholic. Agitator went up and down, did not go back and forth. And what it did, it tied your clothes in knots. I don't know that it cleaned them any better than anything else, but I can guarantee you it tied them in knots. And it was a regular thing that it did because there was a button on the front of it that said reset because it knew that when it went into spin with the clothes tied in a knot, it wasn't going to spin. And that button would pop out, and then you had to rearrange all those wet clothes so that it would spin. Now, I know somebody here is bound to have had one of these washing machines besides me. And so what happens? I'm out there, and I'm doing the wash, and where's he? God only knows. What's he doing? Who knows? What is he doing it with? I'll never, never find out. You know, I'm out there, and I'm taking these clothes, and the button goes off. It needs to be reset. So I, my, my mother, the wonderful dressmaker, had made me this denim shift dress and had long ties. Remember that used to be a fashion? Maybe some of you see it in a history book. Anyway, it used to be... <laughs> These long ties went down in that tub. And as I'm rearranging those clothes, I'm not paying attention to what those ties are doing. Now, I'm here to tell you folks that wet clothes will grab. Because when I punched reset, I went for 16 minutes on drip dry. It jerked my head down on that agitator. And I couldn't reach the knobs now. So when it's all over, my, my jaws are black and blue and my teeth hurt, feel like they're falling out of my head, and it's all his fault. If he'd have been home where he should have been, this wouldn't have happened to me. Stuff like that. Just your normal, everyday madness, you know? And he would come home, and now I, wouldn't, I went through a period of looking for him, but I got tired of going to jail. Because when I would find him... I would have to go in, you know, and I'd have to save my home by turning the table upside down, slapping his lower companion flat, throwing a drink in his face, and starting World War III. And then the bouncer, have you ever noticed I hired gorillas to do that? The bouncer would throw me out, and sometimes I'd go around or two with the bouncer, and I'd go to jail. So I got tired of that. So I'd stay home and wait for him to come home. And now, if he got picked up by the police, he would beg them, Don't call her. Don't call her. She's going to hurt me. <laughs> but before it was over with, he'd have to tell them who they were, and they'd call me. And then I'd hurt him. And <laughs> you know, he'd open the door, and I'd just start swinging. I mean, you get to a point, you don't even have to have a response about anything. You just attack, you know. Because all of that fear, all those hours, I'm wondering, the minute I see that he's alive, goes into it. Anger. All of that fear now transfers itself into anger. And that's when you get very, very dangerous. And that's the way we lived. And then there came a time where I just told him, I can't do it anymore. I cannot do it anymore. I can't live like this. And he said, well, I don't mean to do what I do. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, you know, I think I'm sick. I said, that is the truth. You are sick, sick, sick. <laughs> You know, in our uh, literature in Al-Anon, it teaches us that sarcasm tears flesh, you know. And I broke a man's spirit with my mouth. 
that continuous telling him how he was, what he should have been, what a failure he was, those kind of things. I did that to him. And so, you know, I don't, I'm not, you know, proud of those things today, but that was what happened in our home. And so I took him to the doctor since he said he was sick, and he told the family doctor he might have a slight drinking problem. <laughs> Titanic had a bad day. <laughs> okay. And the doctor said, well, I don't know what to tell you other than to go to AA. They seem to help people with drinking problems. And J.D. said, I'm not an alcoholic. I said, that's right, he's not. You see, he didn't drink like my daddy, my, my mother's daddy and all those. He didn't, didn't look the same because you don't want to see it the same, you know. And my, here my grandfather was the underbridge wino. J.D. wasn't an underbridge wino. He's not an alcoholic, don't you know? And so the, he said, well, what do you want from me? And J.D. said, I need a prescription. He said, I got some friends who are taking antabuse. And if I had just a little help, I know I could do the deal. So he gave him a prescription. I took it. I took it down and had it filled because you can't trust him. And I became keeper of the pills. Well, I wanted to be sure he took it because what I heard the doctor say was, if you give him a pill, he can't drink. Because that's what I wanted to hear. And so now I've got high blood pressure, and we've got an epileptic dog, and J.D.'s on the pill. Every morning in a hurry going to work, I can't guarantee who got what, but everybody got a pill. <laughs> and he's not drinking, but I'm not happy. Now, see, this is a real puzzler because, see, if he wasn't drinking, I'd be okay. That's like, I have a headache. Would you take my aspirin? I know I'll feel better. You know, <laughs> didn't understand. Why am I not feeling better? Well, it's his fault. It has to be his fault. It's not my fault. Can't go there. You know, and so I determined it wasn't his drinking. It's just him. It was him, you know, and I just hated him. We could not talk about anything. We fought over anything. Like, what would you like for supper? Honey, I don't care, just anything. Well, what would you like? <laughs> anything. Fried chicken? No, I don't want fried chicken. Well, what do you want? Anything. <laughs> you want spaghetti? Absolutely not. You make the world's worst spaghetti. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> what do you want? Anything. <laughs> I'll fix anything. So I fix something. He looks at it and says, you don't expect me to eat that, do you? I say, you got a choice. You can eat it or you can wear it. Sometimes he ate it. Sometimes he wore it. You know, and the funny thing about this is I've seen this in people in sobriety. Where do you want to go out for dinner? Oh, I don't know. I don't care. Well, where would you like to go? Oh, doesn't matter to me. What about so and -so? No, I don't want to go there. You know, I mean, it's the same kind of crap, you know. It's so amazing to me. But anyway, so I begin to hate him. Hate him even more because I see him as the problem. Can't look at me. And that's when the committee came that summer. The committee moved in with me. It was just a normal day like any other day. I got thinking. Now, when, when I hear somebody I sponsor say, I've been thinking, that scares me, you know, because the most dangerous thing one of us can do is think. You know, if it's broken, don't use it so much. You know? <laughs> and so I began to think, and what I thought was, I am so miserable. I just can't stand to live like this any longer. Well, why don't you just get a divorce? Well, I can't get a divorce. Well, why can't I get a divorce? Well, if you get a divorce, you've already divorced one. So that means there might be something. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. Well, you don't want to be a divorcee. Well, what could you... Well, you could be a widow. What was that? <laughs> well, that's sort of honorable, being a widow. Oh, I like that. But he's not dying. No big deal. Well, what do you think we ought to do? Well, personally, I think we ought to take an ice pick, stab him in the neck, and watch him drip. Ooh, yeah, that's good. Or how about we back over him with the car? That's right, buy new tires. And that was how the thinking began. Now, I know today the things that I have in my head, you know, we're sick as the secret. Had I told somebody that, I would have had a chance to hear myself saying, this is what I'm thinking, and I could have said, that's crazy. But no, you don't tell people what you think. Or the person that I was telling it could have said, that's crazy. You know, but you don't have that. And what you don't share, 
It's what you're liable to keep thinking and adding to, and the next thing you know, you're acting on. It doesn't just happen instantaneously. It doesn't just happen that way. At least it didn't for me. I kept on thinking about it, and then I, one day I saw in the paper a woman had killed her husband, and she'd used the grounds as, well, he was an alcoholic. And they still put her in prison. And I thought, oops, not good. Back to the drawing board. So we had to have another meeting. So we thought about it, and we thought about it, and we finally came up with it one day. If an alcoholic were to pass out in the bathtub and drown, who would know? We all liked it, but it's a group conscience. <laughs> and so all you have to do then is just wait for the time. And then sure enough, a year to the week that he went on interviews, J.D. got drunk. We had ice and snow in Arkansas. And bless his heart, he didn't know how to drive on it. But, uh, but I had lived in Newfoundland, you know. I'd come home from work that day, and then I heard the truck... And it sounded like it was going about 60 miles an hour in a second. You know, that sound. And it went zipping across and hit the hitching post horse, went sideways across the yard, hit the tree, bounced into the side of the house. And I thought, good God in heaven, he cannot drive on this. But then he opened the door and he poured out of the truck. I'd seen that too many times. And I said, that SLB's drunk and I'll kill him if it's the last thing I ever do. So when he came through the door, I never said a word, just hit him as hard as I could. And when he fell, J.D. says, you just don't hit like a woman. I said, I never did figure acting, you know, the little scratching and the slapping. That's not, do the fist, get you a weapon. That's the way to go. <laughs> if you're going to fight, fight to win, for God's sake. Who wants to be maimed? Anyway, <laughs> I just hit him. And when he fell, he hit the coffee table, and it knocked him out. And so I drug him across the living room floor, and I drug him into the bathroom. And I took his clothes off of him, and I ran the bathtub full of warm water, and I put him in the bathtub, and I held him under until the bubbles quit coming. And I'm looking at him laying there in the bottom of the tub, and there was a voice that came in my head, and it says, look what you're doing. You can't do this. It's not a committee member. Who is that? <laughs> I reached down the tub, and I picked him up by the hair of the head, and I said, the hell I can't, and I put him back down. And the voice came back, and the voice said, Don't you realize you're committing murder? You're taking the life of someone you once loved. Don't you see that? And it's, it talks about it in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says there's a moment of clarity in which you see yourself, to see the reality of what you've really become. And I had become an animal to fight an illness. And it scared me. You know, it's like all of a sudden the reality of what you're doing, this is premeditated murder. You've been thinking on this for months. Get him out. You know, and so I got him out of the bathtub. And I drug him there on the floor, and thank God I had worked for the Red Cross, and I was able to resuscitate him. And then I drug him into the bedroom, dried him off, put him in bed. Got the hair dryer down, dried his hair, didn't want him to catch cold on me. <laughs> and I had a problem with step two, y'all. <laughs> anyway... I went in the living room, and I sat down in my rocker, and I began to rock. And I rocked there for eight to ten hours with a desperation I had never known in my life. You see, I knew I couldn't live like this anymore. And I didn't know how not to live like this anymore. There was no solution. There's no light. There's no nothing. And uh, he, uh, he was in that room for three days. I never went back in there because, see, I kept wanting to go back in there and kill him. And I was afraid of what I would do if I went in. And he would beg for help, and he would scream and whatever. And I had seen him have DTs before, and I just didn't think anything about it. I didn't know that it was dangerous or what would happen or whatever. And what I didn't know, too, was that J.D. had drank way too much in a short period of time. And J.D. was having alcoholic poisoning. So it's only by the grace of a loving, merciful God that J.D.'s alive and that I'm not in prison somewhere. Well, it was different. You know, we were always saying this time it's going to be different. Well, this time it was different. And what happened was I went on and went to work as if nothing had happened. You see, if he hadn't have got drunk, I wouldn't have had to do that. And that's how you justify attempted murder. It's just that simple. When I came home one day, J.D. was standing there or sitting at the bar shaking like a leaf, and uh, he wanted to know if I would call the Alcoholics Anonymous number for him. He had been trying to get it all afternoon and kept getting wrong number because he's shaking so hard he couldn't dial the phone correct. 
And I looked at him and I said, what could a group of drunks do for you that I haven't done? (laughs) And he said, I don't know, but I know one thing. I'm going to die if I don't get some help. And so I looked up the number and I called the central office. And the lady that answered the phone told me there was a meeting in one hour's time, just six blocks from our home. And it was at a community building that was built by my grandfather who died of alcoholism. I had gone to that building to scouts when I was a kid. So I knew exactly where it was. And uh, I didn't want to go, but I told him I would take him if he wanted to go. And he said he would go. And so I put on, I had a leopard coat. On a leopard coat, and I had this red crocheted hat I pulled down. I had these black and white checkerboard sunglasses. Well, I didn't want to overdress for you folks. And I didn't want to be seen. Now, it's 8 o'clock at night, for God's sake. And I'm coming in in these dark sunglasses, and they rushed me into AA. And him and Dalanon. Well, we got that straightened out. And uh, I was not amused. (laughs) And so he got a sponsor that night. Now, there was two ladies that walked over to me, and they said, We have Alan on. It's for you. And I said, I'm only here with him. There's nothing wrong with me. The denial system, there's nothing wrong with me. So uh, J.D. got a sponsor that night. This old guy came over, and he said, I'm going to be your sponsor, boy. (laughs) J.D. didn't ask for a sponsor. They gave you a sponsor. You know, and that guy, I'm real grateful to Derwood. Derwood saved J.D.'s life. And Derwood told me, if you don't get off his ass, he ain't going to have a prayer. You know, I'm grateful for sponsors that cared enough to talk to the family, to be there to the family and let us know what we were doing that was making the situation worse. Because he couldn't live like that and stay sober. I know exactly what you're saying. And... um, so he told me I needed to go to Al-Anon. That didn't mean I went immediately. But you see, J.D. did an awful thing. He prayed and asked God to help him stay sober. And the first thing that happened, J.D. got fired. Now, he worked on that job maybe once or twice a week for 10 years, and they kept him because in once and twice a week, he could do as much as anybody else could in all week. But when he got sober, he couldn't work. J.D. was having problems. No, husband's a welder. And when you're like this, it's a little hard to weld. <laughs> and so they fired him. And that gave him an opportunity to do something about his life. And so he went into treatment. But it was so funny because Derwood came over at the house. He and he brought this alcoholic woman with him. And they sat down and they had to get my permission to put him in treatment. Because I was in charge. <laughs> Exactly. I was in charge. They told me, they said, you know, you've got to. And I'll never forget that woman sat there and she talked with me and she convinced me that for 30 days, could I let him go for 30 days if it would save his life? You know, and I had to debate about whether I even want his life saved or not, you know. (laughs) But I'll be forever grateful. And, you know, back in those days, the people in Al-Anon were the member were the family members of sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we worked together like a family. We weren't us and them like you see so much across the country now. I don't understand that because those AA women and men treated me just the same as they did him. They wrapped their arms around me and they loved me and they comforted me and they did everything. And a lot of times I could talk to them easier than I could talk to one of the Al-Anon members because when I got to Al-Anon, I was young, for God's sake. And they were these little thin, blue-lipped, cooking-baking bitches. (laughs) And they were afraid of me. They had never seen anything quite like this. You know, and if, you know, they, they were just so sweet and so nice. How can you tell someone so sweet and so nice all the stuff you've done. You know, I just couldn't. But I could talk to the alcoholics because I'd hear all the ratty things you've done. I'm going, yeah, man. And then one day there was this little bitty, little delicate flower looking like, looked like she's 80-year-old woman, Louise, and she had her hair and these little curls, and she talked about, well, when Walter drank, 
I, we lived at the top of an apartment building, and I used to take a string and pull it across the top of the steps so that he could fall down and break his gnarly neck. And I thought, God, I love her. And you see, the reason is when we share, when we share the truth of what it used to be like, what we do is we open the door for you to take those secrets out of your closet and to know that it's okay. No matter what you've done, we give you. That's the reason we always share. I used to say, well, why do we have to sit through the drunk log and all like that? If you don't identify with the problem, you will not identify with the solution. And that's the reason we do that. So when I open up those dark doors, it gives you permission. One lady said, I used to take a baseball bat and beat mine to death in the floor. And I thought, oh, I love it, I love it. You know, I've got so much material if I ever decide to go back out there again. (laughs) Just all these things I never thought of. You know, we are really creative. But, But those are the things that it gave me permission to get that guilt and all that that you can go beyond that. And I thought, how can they say that and be okay saying that to strange people? How, I mean, how can you do that? And the bottom line is because I'm no longer carrying that on my back. That's not only longer down in my heart. And I'm not that kind of person anymore. I'm not that way anymore. That's what I used to be like. And what happened was the power and the love of Alcoholics Anonymous and Al and I came into our home and came into my life and came a part of my life. And that's what happened because they pointed me toward a power greater than myself. For a long time, it was the AA and the Al-Anon group. Because you see, I'd been mad at Daddy since 19, I mean, mad at God since Daddy died in 1954. If God had loved me, why did he take Daddy away and leave me with the witch? Why did that happen? And they told me, they said, God doesn't do those kind of things. He doesn't do that. God received your Daddy. Your Daddy was going to die. And God received your Daddy. And I said, well, what about her? They said, what about her? And I said, well, when's she going to be different? They said, she may never be any different, but you can be different. And then I began to get tools on how to be different regarding my mama. And when you become ready, the teachers will appear when you become ready. And a girl came from Missouri to our group for a while. And she had worked through a lot of the mother stuff. And she gave me some great tools to use. And then some friends of mine out in California gave me some great tools to use also. And people from all over have given me tools to put into my life. And you know, you can be given all these tools and they will not work unless you use them. That's the thing. You can go to conferences and you can hear all this stuff, but until you make it a part of your life, it's not going to work for you. Because that's what we had to do. We had to do it. We had to take those tools and use them. And one of the tools that was given was accept her as she is. With all of her limitations, accept the fact she has limitations. And accept the fact you have limitations. And when you can accept your limitations, you'll be more able to accept hers. Anything you want from out there, you have to be willing to give. That's what service is about. Giving. Giving of yourself. Everything that you want. If you want to be loved, then by God, be loving. Be loving to other people. And then the love comes back a hundredfold. It just works that way. I'm glad it does. And I said, but I don't know how. How do you do that? And they said, well, why don't you try... Asking God to see her like God sees her. How would your mother look through God's eyes? Well, I don't know. Well, how, how would you think you look through God's eyes? Oh, that, that can be scary sometimes, can't it? <laughs> and I'm saying, well, I don't know. But I begin to pray, God, if it's your will, I would like to see mother like you see her. And I prayed that prayer for several years. And then one day, the miracle happened. And I was over at my mama's. I had just driven in like any other day. Now, mother and I couldn't be together two minutes and not fuss and fight. You know why? We were so much alike. That's why. We were so much alike. And uh, so when I pulled in that day, I noticed Mama was out in the back raking leaves, and she looked real short. Mama's short. I didn't know Mother was short. Now, that's ridiculous when you stop to reason with that. And it's like, well, why wouldn't I know Mother's short? Because every time you've gone over here, you come as a child. And when you're a child, Mama's bigger than you are. And you came as a child wanting from your mother. That's why mama looks big to you. You never came as one adult to another adult. And you never came giving. You came wanting every time. And boy, that was a 
God moment, I'll tell you. And as I walked back toward my mother that day, it's like I saw inside her heart. And it had lots of scars and hurts on her heart. It was not a heart that was so full of love. And see, I always felt like mother punished me by withholding love. And I realized my mama didn't have it. And I knew when I came here, I didn't have it either. And y'all had taught me how to love. You had, that's a taught thing. And my mother had done the best she could, but you can't give what you hadn't got. And so if anybody was going to bring love into our situation, I was going to be the one to have to bring it because I'm the one who has it. So I went up to my mama and I gave her a hug just like I would a newcomer or one of y'all anytime. And my mother was real stiff. That was real. That was a big deal for her. You know, she wasn't comfortable with that. But I needed to do that for me. And I consistently, when I'd go over there, I would hug to the point that she'd get up to get that hug before I would leave. And then I began to ask people, how does a loving daughter act? I was told, be one. And how do you do that when you don't have a clue? And they said, well, like um, it was getting around Mother's Day. And I said, like, I have a real dilemma here with a card situation. It's hard to find one that says, Happy Mother's Day, bitch. <laughs> now, today, with my computer, I could do that, you know. Uh, but see, God didn't give me a computer until that was gone. <laughs> but the bottom line was, they said, well, what kind of card does she want? I said, well, she wants one of them sweet, syrupy cards I just can't bear to give her because it's so damn dishonest. And this is an honest program. And they said, well, what does your mama want? I said, well, she wants one of those. And they said, well, send it. And, I, and I'm thinking, why? Oh, I just can't do that. But I went ahead and I took the action. And I sent those cards. And I want you to know when my mama died, all those shoebox cards that I sent her, there wasn't any of them there. But those cards that I sent that said you were a good mom and that you were sweet and you were loving and you were kind, she treasured those. She had them wrapped up with a little silk ribbon. Because, you see, my mother needed to know she was okay as a mom because she had felt so less than as a mom that when she got that card, that was a validation for her that she wasn't such a bad person. And she wasn't. She had given the very best she could, always. It's just that I was the one saying, not enough, not enough, not enough. And then finally there came a day when uh, Mother and I were together and I told her, she was asking me questions about things that happened when Daddy died, and I was telling her, of course, I was 12, and she was in her 60s. We would have seen it a lot different. And uh, that's what she commented. She said, well, you know, who knows what the truth was. And I thought, well, that was profound for her. And then she says, but I never understood why you were such an ornery kid. And I said, I was getting even with you for not loving me. And she said, what do you mean not loving you? I said, well, Mama, you never told me you loved me. You never hugged me. You never even told me I did good no matter what I did in school or what have you. You never once praised me. You never did. I never even made up my bed to suit you. I just didn't know. Because, see, as a child, approval would have meant love. And I didn't have that. And she said, well, I gave you a roof over your head, clothes to wear, and food to eat. It was more than I ever had. You see, my mother, who had been raised in that alcoholism, had been abused for years by her father. He physically abused her. She had scars where he would cut her up with a knife, and she had scars all over her body. And then between the age of 12 and 13, he'd come in one night drunk and tried to rape her, and she picked up a stick of stove wood and hit him in the head, and she ran away from home. And she lived under bridge trestles, and she ate out of people's gardens, and she walked halfway across the state of Tennessee to Memphis. She was living in an alleyway in Memphis. There was a Jewish lady that had a boarding house on that alley, she saw my mother out there, and she said, if you'll come in and work and help me with the tables and clean in the rooms, I'll give you room and board. And my mother did. She rescued my mama off the street. That's the early 1900s. My daddy was the head of the recruiting office in Memphis, and he took his meals at that boarding house. And that's how they met. And when she was 16, they got married. Now, if you'd had to live like that, what would be the greatest gift that you could ever give a child? Not having to worry about what you're going to eat. Not having to worry about having the roof over your head. Not having to worry about having clothes on your back. My mama had given the very best gift that she knew how to give. And it became enough. And my mama stood up and she said, you know, baby, I love you. I've always loved you. And she came across and she hugged me. 
And the hole inside of me closed up. That hole that I'd had all those years closed up. Now, why did that happen? Because I did what you told me to do. I did the work. I did the steps. And I got I got that. Got what I needed. You know, God gives each one of us what we need when we need it. Now, the person who had always been there for me all those years, who was that kind, loving, supportive mom, had been my sister Dorothy. Dorothy had been, and I realized that, Dorothy had been my mom all those years, but you see, I never gave her credit for it because I was always looking over here to Mama to give it. Isn't it funny how you're looking here for somebody to give you something and you're getting it from here and you're going, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I missed the whole thing all those years. And I was able then to honor my sister and to tell her I wanted to thank her for being my mother all my life. And she said, Dorothy never had any children. She said, you were always my kid to me. And I knew that. So like I say, it's been a very difficult time. But I'm coming through on the other side. And my sister said to me uh, Thursday when I said, now, Dorothy, I'm going to Cincinnati in the morning. She said, oh, that's good. And I see Dorothy used to be an executive with Procter & Gamble here in Cincinnati. And it's really a shame to see the way her mind is now, you know. And so in about 10 minutes, she said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Cincinnati. She goes, I think I've been there. I said, yeah, I think you have to. And, uh, and she said, well, where are you going there for? I said, I'm going to go be with some friends. And she said, do you have friends? I said, yeah, I have friends. She said, that's nice. You know. And so I started out the door and she said, well, where are you going? I said, Cincinnati. You know. And so I called her when I got here and she said, where are you? <laughs> and you know, sometimes that gets real. You get tired. But uh, J.D.'s job uh, had some problems. He got bought out by their company, got bought by another one. And so um, that changed everything. And here's J.D. He's going to be 65 in February and ready to retire. And all of the benefits have been removed. So I said, God, it looks like I'm going to have to go back to work. I've enjoyed my retirement, but I'm going to have to go back to work. Obviously, lap dancing is not going to get it, you know. (laughs) And I said, God, what should I do there? Because, I mean... It's hard to work full-time when I have all the responsibilities of taking care of two households and all this stuff. And uh, a girl I used to sponsor who's an attorney whose uh, specialty is adoptions. Uh, she said, uh, the girl that's been with her... Now, last the summer before last, her girl had to have surgery, and she said was bitching one night at the meeting about that she didn't know what she was doing. Her office was so screwed up, and I said, I'll be glad to come and take care of that. I said... I used to run offices. That's not a big deal. I mean, you're a one-person office. How difficult could be, you know? And so I went over there and straightened her office all out and made the girl feel really insecure. <laughs> you know how we are. We're so good. And uh, I did that for six weeks while that girl was that gone. And so anyway, so she said, would you come and work for me? She said, uh, I'd really appreciate it. And I said, really? And she said, yeah. She said, you can come and work whatever hours you can. Take off whenever you need to. Go speak. Do whatever you need to do. If you need to take off with your sister, she said, uh, you're so organized. I think that this will work. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. If it doesn't work for you, let me know, and we'll hire somebody full time. And I understand. No problem. If it doesn't work for me, I'll let you know. And uh, the other day, she says, tell me this is working for you. Tell me this is working for you. And I said, why? And she said, because it's really working for me. And I find that it's very rewarding. It's a very rewarding thing. And so now I'm her legal assistant, and uh, we've been doing all this. And and it's very, very nice. It's just very, very nice. And uh, to know that God gave me a situation where we start, like, for instance, my life, like I say, has totally changed. I go to aerobics, water aerobics in the mornings. And so I don't have to go to work till after I get through with water aerobics. And and then I satchel ass in, and and then I do what I need to do. And... uh, she has a dog. She works out of her home, and so she has a dog. So I've got this little dog now that I can love a little round on. And uh, But she's got this big black and white cat. <laughs> and I didn't know she had the cat, and uh, I, I saw him in, and I thought he got in when the dog was let out. And so I, I picked him up by the back of the neck, and I sailed him out across the yard. I evicted him out of his own home, and... Um, <laughs> He's trying to make up to me. He likes to come and nibble on my neck, you know. And uh, I'm really having a hard time with that. I don't like cats. 
And, but Buddy and I have sort of got a truce. He sleeps in my paper tray on my printer. Uh, <laughs> so things are changing, you know. You have to change. And, and that's an old idea, I guess, that I was attacked by a cat when I was eight. And it's hard to get over some things like that. But Buddy's sort of like having a black and white dog within a cat's body. He, <laughs> I'm beginning to get used to old buddy over there, you know, and Cecilia is another cat who bit me. I'm not having fun with Cecilia. But this is just part of the change. You do what you got to do. You suit up, you show up, and God has provided these things for us. And so uh, yesterday when I was getting ready to leave the house yesterday morning, I got a call, and Kay, who is my boss and my friend, like I say, we start each morning with hugs and prayer, and um, she called, and her mother had a heart attack yesterday morning in Arizona. And so, if you will, please remember Kay's mom in Arizona in your prayers. And it's just that prayers that have carried me this year. And I want to thank you so much for that. Because you just never know. If you'd have thought, when I get to this point in my life and everything would have turned upside down totally, because there's nothing the same in my life today that there was this time last year with the exception of God, who is always faithful, and the programs of AA and Alan. Because I could depend on y'all when I couldn't depend on anything else. And I have seen another side of my husband who has been like a rock for me when I needed it. He said, you think it's been hard on you? He said, you were in one hospital having your heart done, and uh, your sister was in the other one in ICU. And he said, I was losing the two ladies of my life for all I knew. And he's having a real hard time with the loss of our dogs. He really is because those were his kids too. So that's where we are today. You know, there's the good, there's the not so good, but you know, it's all, we're walking through it, and that's it, and we're not doing it alone, we do it together. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I do not choose the color, but he worketh constantly. Sometimes in sorrow, sometimes foolish pride, I forget he sees the top, while I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly. Well, God unroll that canvas and explain the reasons why. But the dark threads are as needful in a skillful weaver's hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern God has planned. Thank you for having me.